heard the story, perhaps, of the little girl who saw Snow White for the first time. And she came in and was so excited, she relayed the whole story to her mother, ending with the line, said, Mother, you wouldn't believe it, but the handsome prince came and kissed Snow White, and she woke up, and then you know what happened? And the mother said, Yes, they lived happily ever after. And she said, No, they got married. Living happily ever after and marriage are not necessarily <clears throat> synonymous ideas. Most people, when they get married, they are excited about the way that the courtship is going. They like the way their fiancé acts. And so they figure, well, I'd like to do this for the rest of my life. And then they get married. The trouble is, though, when you get married, you marry a sinner. And the spouse, your spouse, when you get married, also marries a sinner. And sinners tend to sin. And so you got a very a bunch of creative things happening here. It's not too uncommon at all where the husband once seemed very good-looking and self-confident. Now the wife looks at him and says, You're vain. Where once the, the husband looked at his wife and thought, You know, she's really smart and stylish. Now he looks at her and thinks that she's really a know-it-all and a materialistic woman. What happened? What is it that causes uh, two very happy people, two people very much in love, to all of a sudden become two very unhappy people wondering what in the world went wrong? Well, the fact is, reality moved in. And that's all it was. I think it was Thomas Decker who made the statement, Oh, what a heaven is love. And oh, what a hell. I figure he was probably married. Every marriage has problems. The difference is, how are you going to work on those problems? You're going to handle it correctly and grow through the struggle. You're going to handle it incorrectly and grow apart. Let's look together at the fifth chapter of our text, the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, or we might paraphrase it, the greatest of songs. We've followed this couple all along their development through their being attracted to one another, through their character, in their courtship days of focusing on the relationship with one another rather than simply their physical relationship. Last week we saw the wedding day and the wedding night. And you might be tempted to think that the Song of Solomon depicts the perfect marriage. But it doesn't. It, it, uh, it shows an ideal marriage, but it doesn't show a fantasy. It shows reality. And reality in marriage is conflict, as well as the joys. And that's what we see here in chapter 5, starting at the second verse. The wife is going to relate a dream she's had about her, about an event, about her and Solomon's first problem. Let's read it in verse 2. She starts and says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake, meaning she's dreaming. A voice, my beloved was knocking. And he says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. 
So apparently Solomon comes home at a late hour from running the nation Israel. And we know it's late because the dew has already begun to fall. And in Israel, the dew is very heavy. It's not like here where you got just a little water and everything. There it was, in a sense, through a very heavy fog and almost like rain. So he's, his hair is wet and he wants to be let in. And like the typical man, he's forgot his key. And so he hollers through the, through the hole there in the door uh, and uses all these wonderful expressions. In fact, you're never going to see in the book any more kind, expressive, tender names for the wife other than right here. He crams them all together. And when you do that, you're, you become very vulnerable to, to open up like that. And anybody that's been married at least a day knows that the very openness which is necessary for intimacy is also uh, a spot of your vulnerability for pain. Because with the depth of the joy of marriage also comes the potential through that same heart opening of vulnerability for pain. Marriages struggle primarily around two areas. The first are differences, and the second are indifferences. Usually the differences are the ones that we discover first. Uh, I got an email that added two more elements to my periodic table. Now, I didn't do very well in high school in chemistry. I don't know about you. But I might have done a little better if I had known of these two additional elements. The first one, the element's name, is woman. The symbol is W-O. The atomic weight is plus or minus 120 if you can find out. It's hard to ever weigh it. The physical properties, generally round in form, boils at nothing and may freeze at any time. Melts whenever treated properly. Very bitter if not used well. The chemical properties of this element, very active. Possesses strong affinity to gold, silver, platinum, and other precious metals. Able to absorb great amounts of exotic food. Turns slightly green when placed beside a better specimen. Ages rapidly. Usage. Highly ornamental. An extremely good catalyst for disintegration of wealth. Probably the most powerful income-reducing agent known. Caution. Highly explosive in inexperienced hands. All right, that's the first element. Here's another one. Its name is man. Symbol is XY. Atomic weight, plus or minus 180. Physical properties. Solid at room temperature, but easily gets bent out of shape. Fairly dense and sometimes flaky. <laughs> Difficult to find a pure sample. Due to rust, aging samples are unable to conduct electricity as easily as young, fresh samples. <laughs> Chemical properties. Attempts to bond with WO at any chance. Also tends to form strong bonds with itself has a tendency to create bonds with inanimate objects, such as boats, cars, and airplanes, becomes explosive when mixed with the element kid for prolonged periods of time. Best to neutralize through exposure to television radiation, particularly with cheering crowds. Usage, none really, except methane production. <laughs> 
Good samples are able to produce large quantities on command. <laughs> Caution, in the absence of WO, this element rapidly decomposes and begins to smell. Are you one of those people that when you get into a public restroom, if, there, if the, the, the toilet paper is not round, wound the way that you like it, you turn it around? Oh, come on. Who, who do we have here? Somebody's got to be honest. I'm being honest. I'll do it. Unless they've got that thing locked, I'll turn it around. Okay, Joe, I see that hand barely up. It's funny that when you grow up thinking just some things are right, uh, the issue of the toilet paper, that's an easy one. Uh, I mean, everybody knows that it needs to run forward to backward, but not everybody does that. And so you get married, and all of a sudden, your spouse squeezes a toothpaste from the middle. And you want to squeeze it from the end. This can cause a problem. Unless you do what Kathy and I do, and we just get two toothpastes. You can do whatever you want to do. They took a national survey that showed that on the average, an average woman's list of favorite things to do with her husband... To have a time of physical intimacy with her husband was ranked number 13. You know what was ranked 12? Gardening. Gardening over sex. The average, time, uh, average number of times a woman cries per month is five times. Uh, a man cries one time on the average per month. Differences like this can be a real irritant to a young couple, especially if the man doesn't like gardening. <laughs> our selfishness, our, just the natural differences between the way God has made a man and a woman, the two different cultures, the two different homes that we come from, you bring these, all these differences together, plus the fact that our selfishness doesn't want to change our preferences of the way of doing things you inevitably come from two different directions and can have conflict. Uh, I saw a Frank and Ernest cartoon that represents this well. The topic that night is marriage, and they say, he says marriage is a two-way street. That accounts for all the head-on collisions. It's true. We're coming from two different directions. And to have any kind of a harmony, you've got two sinners living under the same roof, is going to produce conflict. Not only are the differences producing conflict, but after a short period of time, so also do our indifferences. And that's what we see now in verse 3. Remember Solomon has come, he's knocked on the door, he's wet, the door's locked, he wants in. Look how she responds to his request in verse 3. She says, I have taken off my dress, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? Somebody want to give me a paraphrase of what she's essentially telling him? Let yourself in. Why should I have to get up and do it? You know, I've already dressed for bed. If I get up again, uh, there in that culture, you would always wash your feet before you got into bed because you wore sandals and your feet were dirty. So you'd wash them before you got into bed. If she got up, she'd have to wash her feet again. I like the way the NIV translates it. It says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? What an incredible contrast you see here between this woman 
here in chapter 5, and the woman that we saw uh, back in chapter 3, who in a dream as well got up out of bed and went searching all throughout the city for uh, Solomon. And now she won't get out of bed and walk across the floor to unlock the door to get him out of the rain. It's amazing how a little time plus marriage equals complacency. Very often in our attitude. Isn't it funny how when you get comfortable with one another, you don't mind expressing what you really feel? We were potty training uh, uh, our youngest daughter, Caitlin. And as was the custom at that time, we would get up in the middle of the night and take her to the bathroom. And I was usually the one that did this. And it was winter at this particular instance. And I was warm in my bed, much like Solomon's wife here. And I responded much like Solomon's wife did when Kathy rolled over and said, Did you take Katie to the potty? And I said, Why don't you do it? I shouldn't have said that. That was like Solomon's wife's reaction. Simply concerned about my own comfort as opposed to the needs of the other. It's no surprise that the word familiarity comes from the word family. Webster defines familiarity as a close association without formality and ceremony. In other words, you know somebody, but you don't have to fake it. You can be who you really are. That's familiarity in regard to people. Mark Twain one, one time said that after he had learned all the twists and turns in the Mississippi River, that he said it really disappointed him because he said that he had exchanged the rivers he called poetic surprises for predictability and familiarity. He knew what was going to happen. He was very familiar with it. Chris Thurman wrote this, For some reason, maybe because familiarity really does breed contempt, we go from our dating years when we did things out of desire with little sense of what we were owed in return to our stuck-with-each-other married years when everything is totaled up for payback. Familiarity breeds contempt. Today's kind of going to be cartoon day. I found several. I just couldn't refuse. This one's great. The bride says, uh, I have no vow, Pastor. But I would like to read him his rights. You know, we shouldn't do it, but we do. We go into marriage with that kind of an attitude thinking, I've got rights, you've got rights. And the thought often here is, well, I took out the trash all last week. The least you could do is take it out tonight. Or, I watch the kids all day long, every day. Now, I, I want a night off by myself. You watch the kids tonight. You'll have these kind of IOUs instead of serving one another. You trade green stamps. Well, I've done so much of this and that's kind of uh, stocked up my pile of green stamps. Now I'm going to trade in all these things I've done and you owe me that I get to do what I want to do. But you know, the funny thing is, when we flip a few more pages to the New Testament, you don't see Jesus trading green stamps. He died on the cross because he chose to. 
He could have called at any moment 10,000 angels to come and to rescue him, but he didn't. He willingly did it. He chose. What could the king of the universe, who had everything, who lacked nothing, gain by dying on the cross for a bunch of sinners? Nothing. Jesus gained nothing when he died for our sins. He gave. He was not obligated to die for us. He was obligated to judge our sin. But because of his great love for us, he died on the cross for our sins. And he offers forgiveness to anyone who will place their faith in him. That is what love does. Not giving to get, but giving because you love. Giving to get is based simply out of your flesh. It is a, a reaction. It's based off of your feelings. Oh, I feel generous, so I will do such and so. That's not love. Love is a willful decision to do what you need to do when you don't want to do it. Like what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he bowed before the Father and said, I don't want to do this, but if you want me to do this, then I'll do it. And we're told in a letter in the New Testament that our attitude is to be the same as Christ. And even though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't pull rank. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Now, if God can be a servant, then we who have been redeemed, Jesus having died for our sins, we should be servants. Not to get but because we love. Now, I'm not saying that you can't express your desires, that you shouldn't express your desires, and that there shouldn't be uh, a fair distri distribution of the labor, so to speak. All I'm saying is your spouse doesn't owe you, and you don't owe them. You do what you do because you choose to, out of love. Or at least that ought to be our motive. So because we have differences, and because we have indifferences, there's conflict. You cannot avoid it. And often what happens when you spout off and you say something selfish, immediately you regret having said that. How many times have you said something and you wish you could just reach right back out there and grab it, and back up ten seconds and say it right? You see that happening here in verse 4. She's made this selfish comment, essentially, let yourself in, I'm in bed. And now look what happens in verse 4. She says, My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. So what's happening here? Well, she has said, basically, let yourself in. So Solomon tries. He sticks his hand through the hole and tries to unlatch the bolt. She sees his hand, she says. She feels sorry for him. She gets up to let him in. But then she comes and she reaches out, and as she uh, pulls on the bolt to open the, the door, he's gone. But she notices on the bolt there that there's myrrh. Obviously, when he had reached in, he had been holding myrrh to try to uh, open the bolt. 
And if you remember, last week, myrrh is what was often used to, in some sense, set the mood for a romantic time. And so she's there with myrrh on her hands, uh, having just said something selfish to her husband who wanted a time of intimacy, and now he's gone. It's kind of like barking your husband out of the room only to find out he's bought you a dozen roses. <laughs> Sorry. And notice that Solomon doesn't get angry. There is not one word retaliated in retaliation. You know, I have noticed in my marriage, and not only in my marriage, but in all relationships of value to me, that get close to me, that when somebody says something selfish to me, or pops off and offends me, when I come right back, which is always my immediate desire, at least anyway, and say something, just return it, and give it right back to them twice as creative and cutting as they gave it to me. That justifies, in their mind, having a sour attitude toward me. It's like, see, I told you, you're a jerk. Look at the way you reacted to what I said. It justifies it in their mind. But if you're silent, I have noticed the times that I'm able to bite my tongue and not say anything. That it's not, whenever that happens between me and Kathy, it's not an hour that Kathy will find me and apologize. And incidentally, it's the same way with her, much more often. She will just kindly look at me, and I can hear the voice of God in my mind, saying, Wayne, you shouldn't have said that. He doesn't get angry, and apparently the grace which he gives her, the Lord works on her heart. Look halfway through verse 6. She says, my heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, I am lovesick. So she comes now and she goes and looks for him, running all through the city, and she's wearing this huge shawl, and the guards see her, probably figure she's a thief, uh, running here in the middle of the night, and so they strike her. Now the English is a much more harsher, much uh, harsher translation. The Hebrew just basically says that they bruised her and pulled her shawl off to see who it was, and I bet they were surprised to see you know, the queen of the nation Israel here running around hollering for her husband in the middle of the night. Probably very quickly let her resume her search. But notice then she says to the daughters of Jerusalem or to the women, and remember it's to these women that she had earlier uh, spoken. She says, if you find him, tell him I'm lovesick. In other words, tell him that I'm now wanting what he brought the myrrh for. That's what lovesick means, as we've seen the word used before. So she's had a change of mind, and that's happened because he responded correctly. A couple of real good principles we can glean from this text today. And if you've been married longer than a day, you have struggled with the issue of <clears throat> losing that loving feeling. Because true love has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with your will. The joy comes from doing what's right consistently. Here's a principle. A good marriage isn't, isn't one with an absence of conflict, but one that's committed to its resolution. 
All couples have struggles. All couples do. You know, some people, and even Christians particularly, because you get God into the whole picture, figure that God would not have allowed them to get married if they figured it was going to be so difficult. With, with the logic, well, I thought God brought us together, so why aren't we happy? You know, we're so convinced that this was God's perfect one sent to me, so why aren't we happy? If we have to work hard at marriage, we not, must not be right for each other. If I'm not happy, God must not have brought us together. And so they jump ship. But the only problem is that when you jump ship, you go into your next relationship with the same flaws that caused the breakup of the first relationship, except now you also take with you the mindset that the way you deal with struggles in marriage is to jump ship, rather than to hang tough and work through it. Now, it's not uncommon at all to hear, for example, a wife say, Oh, if only my husband would communicate with me, we would have a good marriage. On the opposite foot, Oh, if only my wife would quit nagging me, I would be happy. The only problem here is that other people's reactions to you can't cause or can't determine your happiness. Now, obviously, it plays a part in your mood, but ultimately, your happiness is your decision. Even if you married a perfect person, you still wouldn't be satisfied. Uh, Jesus Christ, obviously, was a perfect person. You look at his life, his nation, and even his most intimate, close friends. Everybody, those far away and those closest to him. And remember, Jesus was perfect. They misunderstood him. And they rejected him. Every one of his disciples uh, fled that night. Now, was Jesus not a good communicator? You bet he was. Was Jesus not loving? You bet he was. Jesus did it all right. And yet people still misunderstood him and rejected him. So I'm here to tell you that if you're on the quest for the perfect spouse... I had a woman tell me one time, I'm going to find a man who's going to make me happy if I have to get married ten times. I kid you not, that's what she said. And I told her, I said, you ain't never going to find him. Even if you were to marry Jesus, you wouldn't be happy. Because the perfect person does not alleviate your selfishness. And instead, it enhances it. You get up next to a perfect person and it enhances your selfishness. You're much more aware of it. Shakespeare said, The course of true love never did run smooth. I like that. Because that's essentially what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We looked at that several weeks ago when he said, You get married, it's going to be tough. He's counseling people, Boy, if you can stand it, stay single. Because those who get married in this life will have many troubles. He says, and I want to spare you this. To think that you're going to get married and not have conflict is naive. If there's no conflict in your marriage, then there is no intimacy in your marriage because you are not communicating. Two people living under the same roof, the only way that there's not going to be conflict is if you don't talk and you don't see each other. Be it a roommate, be it a child, be it a spouse. 
You either don't talk and don't, uh, don't see each other. And you know what? Some people resign themselves that that's what they're going to do. They think, well, we've got irreconcilable differences. We don't believe in divorce. So there's your bedroom. Here's my bedroom. I'll see you at Christmas. Don't wake me up when you come in. You see a lot of elderly couples with that kind of an attitude resign themselves to a life of unhappiness. You know that old Carly Simon song, Will Marry? Remember that? Talks about the child coming down and seeing the, the father reading the paper. I pass by, she says, no remark by him. And then she's singing to her lover and says, so you say that uh, that's the way I've always heard it should be. You want to marry me? We'll marry. She's just resigned herself. There's no happy marriages. That's just the way it is. It's the way I grew up. It's the way you grew up. Nobody's happy. Every marriage is going to have problems. The difference comes in how you handle them. You handle them right and you grow closer together and you praise God for the problems. You handle them incorrectly and you grow farther apart and you curse God for the problems. It's not God's fault. God uses everything in your life, including your marriage, to make you more like Jesus Christ. And one of the most wonderful things about marriage is there is a person there that can get closer to you than anybody else that knows the real you, that can hit you in your hypocrisy, where God will use that person to call you on your hypocrisy, to where you will change, or you will be a very unhappy person. Sometimes we'll just close our eyes, close our ears, and hope that all our problems will go away. We'll do that, don't we? As a kid growing up, you did it, I did it too. In school, teacher gives us a project, we put it off to the very last minute, and we end up turning in a sorry job because we did it the night before. Right? We all do that. <laughs> I see a few, a few of you going, yeah, that's the way I did it. Well, but you turn in a sorry job, right? You're putting it off till the last minute. That may be fine with a little project. But when it gets to be like the knocking under your, your car hood, when it gets to be the weeds in your garden that you just keep ignoring, when it gets to be the, the issues in your marriage that you just keep ignoring, one day you can keep putting it off and keep putting it off, but one day that car ain't going to run. One day that garden ain't going to grow, and one day that marriage is going to be in shambles. Remember what they did even before they were married? Back in chapter uh, 2, she says, catch those little foxes for us. And in the very next verse, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. She says, yeah, we need to deal with the problems, but that has nothing to do with our commitment. Just because we have problems doesn't mean that we're not committed to one another. And that's why I say a good marriage is not one with an absence of conflict. Everybody fights. A good marriage is one that is committed to its resolution. Now, you've often heard the verse, well, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And that's true, and that's right, and you shouldn't. But that doesn't mean that you've got to stay up till 5.30 hashing it out till you finally come to resolution. Because, my friends, God may not want you to come to a resolution to an issue for maybe weeks. He may want you to grow beyond simply getting over the problem. And what we'll do is we'll stay up and we'll end up getting so tired as we talk and we argue through it that you'll end up just giving in and giving up and not really coming to a resolution. And then the next day, you think back on your 
false little resolution of your conflict, and you really resent the fact that you gave in. So what does that verse mean? Don't let the sun go down in your anger. It doesn't necessarily mean that you let the sun go down on the conflict. God may want you to struggle a little longer than a day with the issue so that you'll grow. It means don't let it go down on your anger. You can still have an unresolved issue and yet go to bed loving one another and embracing. You can still say, "Hun, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. It's late. I don't see the resolution coming, but I want you to know something. I am committed to you. And while I don't see how it's going to work out, I promise you that I am here and we're going to work it out. I ain't jumping ship. And I tell you what, you can live with that kind of a decision. But you can't keep putting it off like that knocking under the hood. You've got to deal with it. God uses marriage to sanctify and to cause us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you respond in a conflict? We're going to be looking at this a whole lot more next week as we get into how they responded. But before we get into our last point, let's look at one more little cartoon. This lady says, please pray for my husband. He ruptured himself while venting his spleen. Is that how you respond to conflict? Somebody gives it to you, and I'll tell you what, you just give it right back? Or do you do like what Solomon did? And if you do, here's a great principle for you. Responding to selfishness with grace gives God room to bring growth. It's exactly what we saw here. He didn't pop off and get mad back at her, but he gave her space to let God speak to her, and God spoke to her, and she sought reconciliation. She was repentant. Socrates made the statement, I love this, by all means get married. If you get a good wife, you will become very happy, and that is good. If you get a bad wife, you will become a philosopher, and that is also good. The thought being, there can even be good to come from conflict. Our natural reaction is to run from pain. But if we can have our wherewithal to respond like Solomon did, when Mrs. Solomon responded selfishly, Solomon could have said, All right, woman, I'm the king of Israel. You get out of that bed. And you get over here and open this door for me. It's wet out here. And besides that, I've got some myrrh. But he didn't do that. Not one angry word of retaliation. And immediately her spirit was struck. She was convicted. And when that happens to me, I tell you what, when Kathy doesn't give it back to me, when I give it to her, God strikes my heart and says, Wayne, you need to apologize to your wife. So how you respond is very important. Respond to selfishness with grace and gives God room to bring growth. Don't think that just because in your marriage there's struggle, that that's not the person God has for you. God is a sovereign God. If you are married right now, that is God's sovereign will for your life. You don't have to wonder. It is. All the conflict means is that God is working on your character. Just like He does with the flat tire, just like He does with the boss that hollers you at work. Except it gets to be a little closer at marriage because marriage strikes closer to home. 
So, a good marriage, it isn't one with an absence of conflict. It's one that is committed to its resolution. And one of the best ways that you can respond when somebody does that to you, gives you selfishness, is to respond with grace. Because that gives God room to bring growth. Next week, we'll look a whole lot more at reconciliation. We'll devote our whole message to it. But that's definitely enough to chew on for a week. Let's pray together. Lord, it is very difficult for us to love like this. Our natural reaction is to want to give what we've been given, be it love or be it selfishness. Instead, Lord, I pray that you would give us the wherewithal to bite our tongues, to not give any deep sighs of remorse, deep sighs of disgust, but instead, Lord, to truly look to you, to be the one to convict, and we would keep our mouth shut and respond in grace and not in kind. Lord, I know that there are marriages right here before me that are hurting. I know that there are people who have come today perhaps for a glimmer of hope. And I ask, Lord, that you might give them that hope. That there are no irreconcilable differences between two people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You are able to mend any conflict. And so I pray that there would be hope given anew today, that we might cling to your word when we have nothing else to grasp. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Lord bless you.